Well, what a blessing it is uh, to be with you this morning. As Jacob said, my name is Ben, and I'm joined here this morning with my wife, Autumn, who's up in the front row with me. Uh, We have uh, five children, 10 and under, who uh, did not join us this morning. They're at home with Grandma and Grandpa. And, uh, but uh, it's really a, a pleasure and delight to worship with you this morning. Already, uh, my heart is full. Um, I love the line, O trampled death, right? Jesus Christ has triumphed over the grave. And uh, in just a moment, we'll be looking at a passage that's on the other side of that cross and the empty grave and really in the advance of Christ and his church in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8, so you can be turning there. Uh, I had the privilege just eight days ago of being here for the Bible conference, and man, was that a blessing. Uh, my heart was full as well as a result of that, hearing um, brothers uh, really testify of, of the power of God's word, and uh, that was a, a blessing. Uh, I love your pastor. I just want to say that. Um, he's such an encourager. I've, I've only known him uh, for less than a year, and my heart has been so blessed uh, by him. I know he's a man of God. He's a man of prayer. And you are, you're well led by, by Jacob and the, the, the other elders here. And uh, also I have to confess that uh, um, Josh Bowder is really the initial connection here. Uh, he is my best friend aside from my wife and all the world, uh, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Uh, but what a, what a great blessing it is to worship with you this morning as well, brother. Um, again, you can be turning to Acts chapter 8. This morning we'll be looking at verses 26 through 40. And I'd like to just go straight to the text this morning and read that. You can follow along as I read Acts eight twenty six through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. God does something 
absolutely spectacular in this text. And really, in order to understand what God is at work doing here, we need to understand just a little bit of the context. See, Philip, who was appointed as a servant of the church, he's, Philip, this is not Philip the apostle, this is Philip, we could say, the deacon, perhaps on how you in, interpret uh, earlier on in Acts chapter 6, but he's a servant of the Lord, he's serving the church, he's distributing food to widows, and God thrusts him out from Jerusalem, and now he, he's doing uh, ministry, he's preaching the gospel in the land of Samaria. And I won't go into all the details of why that's significant, but there is a great awakening just prior to this passage going on in the land of Samaria, among the Samaritans. And amongst this, in, right in the middle of this huge revival, we could say, this, this great awakening among the Samaritan, God calls him away to one person. And there's a great awakening in one soul in the desert. God does something spectacular. But Philip's part in all of this was really quite simple. It's not the same thing as saying that it's easy, but it was simple. If you look at the verbs of what Peter, sorry, what Philip does in this passage, he hears, he travels, just like he's told. He looks the direction God says to look. He runs he asks a question, he gives the gospel, and he baptizes. I mean, every single one of those things. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily easy, but they're simple tasks. Philip's task in this passage was to serve God in simple ways. And the reason he could do that because, was because he could expect God. While he serves God in simple ways, he can expect God to work in spectacular ways. And really, this is the case for all of us. A lot of times we get really caught up in, in, in the complexities of life, don't we? And yet the Bible's truth is so simple as to what we are called to. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to obey the commandments of the Lord our Savior. We're called to make disciples. Our, our job, though never easy, really is quite simple. And yet all the while we can expect God to work in spectacular ways while we serve him in Simple ways. I just want to look with you this morning at two reasons from this text that we should expect God to work in spectacular ways while we serve him in simple ways. Two very simple reasons. The first is this, because the God we serve is sovereign. The God we serve is sovereign. To say that God is sovereign means that God is the supreme Lord who reigns over all. Do you believe that this morning? that God is the supreme Lord, he's the king over all. One preacher said it this way, God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do whatever he pleases and to do all that he pleases. So God sovereignly placed his servant. It's the first thing we see here in related to God's sovereignty is that he sovereignly placed his servant. Again, his servant was Philip. Philip, as I said just a moment ago, he's right in the middle of a great awakening in, in Samaria. There are signs and wonders being done. People who for, for, for a long time had just ignored what God had said, especially through uh, regarding uh, temple worship and all these other things. They'd kind of come up with their own system of worship. 
And now the gospel was reaching them, and they're turning, and they're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And this is not just a small group. I mean, there are just multitudes turning. And then at this, if you go back to uh, earlier in Acts chapter 8, it'd be a great study sometime this week, perhaps, uh, to look at what happens in Acts chapter 8 when there's this man named Simon the Magician, who is really, a, he, he comes up as a, as a rival against the work of Christ. He really, uh, it, it appears that he embraces the faith. And then all of a sudden it becomes very clear that what his God is is money and fame. And Peter denounces him and so the spirit really upstages Simon the, the, the magician who is this superstar, this rock star in the midst of Samaria. And all of a sudden he's being upstaged by the Lord Jesus Christ through the spirit. This is, this is where Philip was. And now again through an angelic messenger, God says, Go. Go toward the last watering hole before you get to Egypt. This is a really fruitful ministry that's going on here, but I have a job for you. And it's in the desert. And I'm not even going to tell you exactly where it's at. Just go toward this area. He didn't know exactly where he was going. Philip didn't know what he would find when he gets there. Philip didn't know why he was going. Just a, a little reminder here. God doesn't have to tell you what he's doing in your life. Isn't that, a, isn't that actually a great blessing? When he peels back that, when he, when he reveals what he's doing and he maybe peels back the curtain just a little bit for us, that's an added blessing, but he doesn't have to do that. He tells Philip, go. Philip doesn't know how long he would be gone. I mean, is this going to be a permanent ministry? He has no idea. Humanly speaking, this ministry move didn't make sense. From the outside, it may have appeared like Philip was even in God's doghouse. Right? Did I do something wrong here? I thought things were going really well. And now I'm going to just go out to the middle of the desert. And I'm not even being told why. But this was no punishment. This was the plan of a sovereign God. So, Philip rose and went. We see that in verse 27. Obedience because of the sovereignty of God. Philip obeyed God. He knew that God had a plan. Philip was willing to serve God in simple ways while God worked in spectacular ways. Now, little question, and you have to kind of look backward into the book of Acts for this, but how did Philip know? How did Philip know that God had a plan, that God works according to his sovereign plan and that he can just trust and obey? Well, already in this, in this book, we, if we trace Philip's involvement to this point, he had been set aside for the service of, of Christ to serve widows, to, to serve tables, basically distributing food. And all of a sudden, if you remember, there's this persecution that breaks out because of this guy named Stephen that starts preaching the gospel. He's a deacon, he's a servant of God, not even an apostle. And so from Jerusalem, all, the, all these Christians are thrust out from Jerusalem into these neighboring areas. And Philip decides, well, I'm going to take the gospel where I can now. Right? I'm not going to be in Jerusalem for the time being. I'm going to take the gospel to wherever I can. So Philip, just like Stephen, had started out ministry with serving widows, and then he's taken from Jerusalem to Samaria, and now Samaria to the desert. God sovereignly placed his servant Again, just a little application here. If you feel like you are in a desert, 
in this part of your life, it is because of God's sovereign providence in your life. And he does have a purpose for you there. So God sovereignly placed his servant. But I also want you to see this. God sovereignly prepared the heart of the hearer. Long before God ever even sent Philip down to the desert, God was working in the heart of this man, this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this guy. Okay, We don't know his name. We don't know his background, really. But I want us to notice this. Just about everything that we do know about this man from Ethiopia would seem to indicate not his closeness to Israel and Israel's God, but his distance from Israel and Israel's God. There would be a ceremonial distance due to his physical condition. It says that he was a eunuch, which would have put him far outside. It would have rendered him unqualified to draw near to the presence of God within the temple. There was an ethnic distance. He was a Gentile. He was an Ethiopian, not a Jew. From every outward indication, he was far off. There was a geographical distance. In fact, we see in the records from Roman history that at this time in history, Ethiopia was so remote that those in the Roman world would have called this, get this, the end of the earth. Now that's going to become significant, and we'll circle back to that. But think of that. The Romans would call this particular area the end of the earth. For the normal Ethiopian, there was also a drastic difference in how they viewed God in the world. We see just a hint of this in this text. You'll note that he was a high-ranking official of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, the reason that the, the queen was the one who ruled, it, Candace was actually not a, a name as much as it was a title, kind of like Pharaoh, or maybe a, we can think of a czar, right? So it was a title, and it always belonged to the queen. And the interest of this is, an interesting point here is that uh, the reason that it was the queen that would rule is because in their cosmology, in their worldview, the king, who would be the son of the queen, was so holy that he was not to bother himself with the matters of earth. Okay, so the queen would be the one to actually make executive decisions. A, a, a far different cosmology. This is just a hint at just a completely different worldview, really, when it comes to, to pagan ideas fleshed out in, in their in their worldview. So just to summarize, we have here a eunuch, a Gentile from a pagan land, a thousand miles away from the temple. Not exactly the profile of someone that you would think would be likely to be drawn to God. Now you have these people in and amongst yourselves, right? You have people in your neighborhood, you have people in your family. You'd say, this person doesn't seem likely to be brought near to God. Don't you? I mean, can you think of someone that you think, man, I want so-and-so to embrace the gospel, but this is going to require a lot of prayer. (laughs) If this person gets saved, it's only going to be because of God, and guess what? It only ever is, right? But in spite of all these things that would seem to stack stack the deck against this man, God was sovereignly already at work in his heart. Now, we're not sure how the Ethiopian eunuch became aware of Israel's God. Really, it's not too hard to see how it might have happened. Um, Israel, Israelites and Ethiopians, or Cushites, had many opportunities for contact through the centuries. We see several, several of these in the Old Testament, especially from, from Solomon onward. 
And this is partly because of where God in his sovereignty had placed Israel. It was like the, the center jewel, right? And in order to go anywhere of any importance in the ancient world, you had to go through Israel. Most scholars agree that this man was a, a near proselyte of Judaism. He was aware of Israel, of Yahweh, of Israel's God. He had not yet submitted to circumcision and become a proselyte, but he was near that. He was at least a God-fearer. He had a reverence for the God of Israel, though not a practicing Jew. And here's the point. His reverence, this is the kind of reverence this man had for Yahweh. His reverence for Yahweh and his earnest, searching heart had led him on a pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem. That's a thousand miles. And in just one way, and that's going by chariot. Okay? Now, can you imagine? A lot of you are parents and you have young children. Can you imagine if the guy, this guy would have taken his family with? How many are, are we there yet? He would have heard. I mean, that's a long journey, right? The fact that he came all the way up to Jerusalem says something about his commitment to learn more and to know something of Yahweh. But the fact that he left Jerusalem with a manuscript of Isaiah, the prophet, was undoubtedly an testament just to show how much God had been working in this man's heart. You know, today, you could leave from here and maybe even at a place like a department store, you could go and find a copy of God's word. Isn't that, isn't that amazing, by the way? How many of you hold in your hand this morning a copy of God's word? We're blessed. We're rich. A person couldn't just walk into a bookstore in Jerusalem and pay a couple bucks for Isaiah. This would have been a very costly purchase and seemingly impossible for a Gentile to get his hands on and leave Jerusalem with this. By the way, it's interesting to think about why Isaiah, of all the, of all the pieces of Scripture, of all the scrolls that this Ethiopian unit could have picked up and taken back with him, why Isaiah? And, and just even from a human perspective, it's interesting to note that there are several references in Isaiah to Ethiopia and to Ethiopians worshiping Yahweh. From a human perspective, it's interesting to note that several references, especially in Isaiah 56, to the inclusion of eunuchs into the worship of Yahweh. That's fascinating, isn't it? Who knows? Maybe God used those little things, little nuggets throughout the book, to draw this man's attention to the scriptures of Isaiah. But it's even more amazing to think about why Isaiah from a perspective of divine sovereignty. It was God who had led him to this text. Even if the passages regarding Ethiopia and, and eunuchs were of some initial interest to this man, we know that it was ultimately the passage foreshadowing the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that captivated this man and that troubled him, really, Think of this, of all the books in the Old Testament that this man could get his hands on, none is more clear than Isaiah regarding the nature of the Messiah and his work. Of all the passages in Isaiah, this is the one that God had pointed him to. Look at verses 32 and 33. This is what this man is struggling with. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Do you see this? God is sovereignly at work in the heart of this man. Even before Philip gets called south. Philip does not orchestrate this. When God calls us to be his servants, when God calls us to be disciple makers, guess what? We don't win souls in and of ourselves. We are sowers of the seed. We give out the word. And God gives the increase. Right? And it's God's field in the first place. Philip here is just faithfully obediently, simply serving. In obedience, he goes to the chariot. Direct obedience to the, to the command of, of the Spirit. You can see, almost picture Philip trotting alongside this chariot as it bounces along. right? And as it would be very common in the ancient world, actually, they would only ever read aloud, not, not, not quietly. So as he's maybe trotting along this chariot, he hears this man inside reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. And all Philip does is ask a simple question. And I love this in the King James Version. Understandest thou what thou readest? Right? Do you understand what you're reading? Great question, by the way. If you ever, even at a coffee shop, you stop and you see someone reading their Bible. What are you reading? You understand what that's saying? Right? It's a very simple question. But in response, he receives an invitation to come in. And, And when... The, the Ethiopian eunuch says this, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? The eunuch doesn't know it yet, but he just asked a question to which the only answer is Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Do you not see God's sovereignty bringing this man to the point where even though he doesn't even understand it yet, he's asking all the right questions. You see, God sovereignly places his servants, and God sovereignly prepares the heart of hearers. So Philip could expect God to work in spectacular ways while he served God in simple ways. Again, the first reason for that is because the God he served is sovereign, and the God we serve, by the way, is the same God. Nothing has changed in his character or his purposes. The second reason that we can expect God to work in spectacular ways while we serve him in simple ways is this, because the word we proclaim is sufficient. We talked about the Ethiopian's uh, question here in verse 34, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Almost certainly the reason that he was asking this question is because he had no category in his mind of a suffering Messiah. And the Jews did not have a category in their mind. Even though the scriptures testified of a suffering Messiah, the Jews completely missed that. So they had no category in their mind for that. This passage is about the servant of the Lord, a messianic figure prophesied by Isaiah. And there are a lot of other servant of the Lord passages, paragraphs, in Isaiah that wouldn't have been so difficult to understand. He could have gone to passages about this Messiah who would bring justice, who would rule over the nations. But this one was tough. How could this be about the Messiah? I thought the Messiah was going to rule. 
How could the Messiah also be a sufferer? Maybe it's about Isaiah. Maybe it's got to be about Isaiah, maybe somebody else. And, and I think it's interesting to think about this. Where did he just come from? Where did the eunuch just come from? He was on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Right? I mean, that, that is the place to find all the answers, isn't it? Wouldn't, wouldn't one think? If you want to have an, a question answered about Yahweh, where would you go? I mean, you've got to get as close to the temple as you can. Now, as a God-fearer, he would be more than welcome to walk into a synagogue and ask a question of a rabbi. Had the rabbi been able to answer this question? No. How could this be about the Messiah? But now it was not a rabbi's turn to answer that question. It was Philip's turn. And verse 35 is so crucial for us to understand. Philip opened his mouth, and he began to give his own answer. Is that what it says? He reasoned from his own intellect of how this must be. No. Look what it says. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And the implication here is he started at this scripture, but there were a lot of other places for him to go in the scriptures. So Philip's role, again, is simple. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's straightforward. His role was to proclaim Jesus from the word. And again, remember, he had no special calling as an apostle. I think this helps us apply it to ourselves this morning, is that our role when it comes to gospel proclamation is simple. Talk about Jesus from the word. Go to the word. Sow the seed of the word. Philip is saying what Isaiah wrote about Jesus Sorry, Philip is saying that what Isaiah wrote was about Jesus, that he died for sinners, sinners, and he ended up proclaiming, repent and believe the good news. Philip proclaimed Jesus from the word. Now remember that at this time, it's not like Philip has a bound copy. What's the scripture that he has with him? Oh, that's right. You know what he had? He must have had his phone. How many of you have the Bible on your phone? Right, and he could he could just scroll to whatever text he wanted, including the New Testament, of course. Right, for God so loved the world. Here it is, right here. No, he didn't have that. He had a scroll, and he didn't even show up with that. That was from the Ethiopian eunuch. He didn't have the Romans road. He didn't have a tract. He didn't have John three sixteen. Philip knew the word. Believer, let me just say this. If you're going to wield the sword of the word in the power of the spirit, guess what you need to do? You got to know the word. You have to. It's exactly what God has given to us. We talked about that last weekend. The sufficiency of the word. Specifically in reaching souls for Christ. He pointed to the scripture that was available to him in the scroll and that he knew. Beginning with the scripture. Jesus is right here in this text. But Philip wasn't limited to this text. He could have gone to Isaiah 61. I imagine that he did. Isaiah 61 is the passage you might remember that in in, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had taken and he he read it and then he said this applies, this is fulfilled in their hearing because the Lord is here. 
Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus, after Jesus read that in the synagogue, remember what he did? He rolled up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and he goes and sits down, and everyone's watching him. And as he sits down, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the servant of the Lord. You could go to Isaiah 42, where Isaiah talks, he foreshadows this, this bruised reed. The one who will not break a bruised reed, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The servant of the Lord will faithfully bring forth justice. And, by the way, Philip could have gone to any writings. He could have gone to the law, to the Psalms, to the prophets, the historical books. And Philip proclaimed Jesus from the word. Philip knew the same truth that the Apostle Paul would later write, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Philip knew that truth. Folks, do we have the excuse? Really? I mean, when we think about it, when we're ministering, when we're talking to our neighbors, do we have the excuse, you know, I just don't know really, I don't really know what I would say. No, we have a message. It's clear. We have a lot more scripture, actually, than what Philip had to work with here. We have a lot more clear teaching about who Jesus is on this side of the, on this side of the cross. We have all these writings of, of the Apostle Paul that have come to us at this point. We just need to know it. We need to share it. There are all sorts of messages being proclaimed in this world right now, and there's not one of them that is as clear and as needed as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even close. And here in this passage, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but don't miss the power of the word to immediately bring change. Look at what happens. Immediately, this Ethiopian eunuch believes, and it's really indicated here by his search of identifying with Jesus Christ in believer baptism. See, here is water. And, and by the way, the Ethiopian is the one that points this out, right? I see a water hole. I know enough to know that this is my opportunity to identify with Jesus. Maybe Philip had taught some, some of that to him already, but he went on his way regardless, a changed man indicating the Spirit's work. And we don't really see anything in Scripture from here on out regarding the Ethiopian. However, several of the, the, the church fathers go on to say that this man became a missionary to the end of the earth in Ethiopia. But have you considered this? Why all of this? Why, why did Philip have to travel and do the hard work, although it was simple, of going all the way down into the desert without really any reason or a, a whole lot of information, and yet when his task was done, he was simply carried away? Did you notice that? Once his work is done, the Spirit catches him off up and really his task here is done. Acts 1.8. A key verse in Acts is this. You can turn there with me. Again, this, this passage actually kind of gives us the framework for the entire book of Acts. Jesus, right before he ascended, he said this to his apostles, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and by the way, this is, there is a commission, but this is actually a promise. Listen to it here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The God we serve is sovereign. Already, this is in, you see Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you see this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the end of the earth. Already, only eight chapters later, we have a foreshadowing, a, a first, the first fruits of the gospel to the end of the earth. And this is, not, this is something that people in this, in this context would have understood, again, because this is what the Romans called Ethiopia. The gospel's already going there. Folks, the God we serve is sovereign, and the word we proclaim is sufficient. The gospel of Jesus Christ is clear. Jesus Christ, completely God, completely man, without sin, went to a cross for sinners, you and me, so that we might have eternal life in him. But after we're saved, as a result of being saved, with the inclination now toward God and with the gift of the Spirit within us, indwelling us, we are servants of God. And we, as servants of God, can expect God, you can expect God to work in spectacular ways through your life, even while you serve him in very simple ways, ways that you'd think, well, this is nothing. I'm just showing up. Exactly. God gets the glory. I think 90% of the Christian life is just showing up and being faithful. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir this morning, right? I mean, you're here, you're faithful, but keep going. Be faithful. If you were to uh, ever wander up, I, I, I pastor in Chisago City, Minnesota. Some of you might know where that's at. If you ever go hiking at Taylor's Falls, it's right on the way. And if you were ever to stop in and, and say hi uh, on your way through and you walked into my office as you... Uh, approach my desk, you would see a picture on my bookshelf that is very special to me. It's a, a, a picture of a young man named Michael. Now, Michael, sadly, through tra- tragic circumstances, has since gone on to be with the Lord. But in that picture, Michael and I have our arms around each other. Our hair and our clothing are both drenched with extremely cold water from a lake in Lindstrom, uh, where he was baptized. I first met Michael at the Chisago County Jail. It was early in 2017. And at that point, I was really thinking about, I, I had been doing jail ministry for a while, and I was thinking about pulling the plug on that for a number of reasons. There were a lot of factors involved. And I, I, that very day that I went into the jail and I met Michael, I was thinking, you know what? This might be time. I might need to just end this, right? I had been thinking of that recently, However, I had, I had thought about it, I had prayed about it, and I really got the sense that the Lord would have me continue, at least for the time being. In the midst of all the other difficulties about it, I was going to keep going. The very next week, I come into this room where, where a Bible study would happen every week. I would lead a Bible study, and really all I would do is show up with my Bible, okay? I just wanted to show up ready to proclaim the gospel. And that next week, I met Michael. Michael was the first one to come in the room. And when he came in, immediately I noticed something different. 
And that was that he was carrying a John MacArthur study Bible. Now, I had never once seen a John MacArthur study Bible in the jail before. Now, normally they have something called like free on the inside and it has all sorts of, of notes that probably aren't the most helpful. And so right away I saw it, I, I took note of it, and I actually said, oh, you have a, a study Bible. That looks interesting. And so he came right over because of that connection and he, and he came and sat right by me. Now, I have to tell you this. It, it's very abnormal in this setting to be able to have a one-on-one at the beginning of a group time. Normally, people just, they just come in, the, they come in the room all at once, and you basically are just talking to the group the whole time. But on this particular day, Michael came in with this first very small group, comes and sits by me because of that connection with the Bible, and then it takes these, uh, the, the other inmates quite a while, for some reason, to get into the room. And so while we're waiting, I start to have this conversation with this young man named Michael. And he told me that this Bible that he's holding belonged to his grandma who had passed away just a couple months before. Uh, I went on to find out that his grandma was a devout Christian woman. He had a, a, a printout of the obituary of his grandma, who was already, I could tell, a hero to him. And this obituary marked a, a page in his Bible. And it turns out, I find out later that behind the scenes, Michael's parents were believers and that they were praying for him all the while and that they were working really hard, actually, to get this Bible into to, to Michael. So they end up sending him this Bible that caught my attention by which this connection was made and because there were all these people that hadn't come in the room yet, God gave us time to just talk. Friday after Friday, I got to see Michael every single week. Remember I talked about that I, I kind of thought, you know what, I think I might need to be done with this. God wasn't done with me. Friday after Friday, I got to see Michael, and Michael always had that Bible. And another interesting thing is this. Prior to this time, we'd been having a huge turnout. We've had like, to have over a dozen people coming and just like eagerly hearing, it was great. It almost gave you a sense of like, oh, we must be doing something right because people are showing up. And yet... After this meeting, strangely, the numbers started to dwindle. But I was excited. Because now it's a one-on-one, and it was always me and my Bible and Michael and his Bible, and we're just going through the, the Word of God together, talking about the Gospel. And over the next weeks and months, in God's sovereign plan, we had a lot of time just to dig into the Word, and that spring, Michael turned from his sin And he put his faith in Christ alone for salvation. And the change was so clear. It was an awakening. It was a a coming alive. It was a quickening of his soul that you could see. And so God continued to work in his life. And there's a a lot more I could share about what God did in and through Michael's life. But here's the point. Here's the reason I share all that is, is this. That was God. That was an extraordinary work of God to line all those things up. Could I ever have done that? No. But God did it. And all I did was I, I literally, I just showed up with a Bible in my hands. I learned that we can trust God to work. I could trust God to work in a spectacular way while I served him in very simple ways. God sovereignly placed me right where I needed to be, and I didn't understand exactly why. Up to this point, there was a big turnout, but not much fruit. 
And I wasn't doing anything special. I just showed up. And then together we looked into this all-sufficient word of God and, Jesus, and, and, and Michael saw Jesus. He saw what the word was all about. Here's the point. At one, at one and the same time, God was sovereignly placing his servant, which by his grace was, was me, which is almost beyond belief that he would use us, right? God was sovereignly placing his servant, but he was also sovereignly preparing a heart. And he was the one that brought those two together. Now, I understand that not every situation is like this. Not every encounter that you have as you seek to make disciples for Jesus Christ, not, a, never, not every encounter that you have is like going to a, to a tree and, and plucking off a ripe piece of fruit. <laughs> I mean, some of you are laboring in presenting the gospel to people that you know and love, and you're just not seeing any change. But be encouraged. Be content to serve God in simple ways and watch him work. My point is not that we should expect every situation to be like this. The point is that we can expect what we can expect of God's character and of his word. Believer, do you, do you believe this, that no matter what, God is sovereign? Do you believe that no matter what, the word of God is sufficient to communicate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No matter what, we are called, each one of us, to faithfully, simply serve him. And I just wonder this morning, where has God sovereignly placed you? And remember, it could feel like a desert. Where has God sovereignly placed you? I, I know this. I don't know you, most of you, but I know this. Wherever God has placed you, he wants to use you there. Another question, who has God placed in your path? Who recently has God put there in just such a way that you could minister to that person? Whose heart might God be preparing to receive the message of the word that you can give to them? And will you serve him in simple ways and expect him to work in spectacular ways? This is all rooted in the character of God. Because God is sovereign, because his word is sufficient, you can simply serve and expect him to do big things. You know, I, I love simplicity. I love things like the book of First John that tell us this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and that they're not burdensome. That just really brings it down to simplicity, doesn't it? Again, a lot of times we tend to overcomplicate things. This morning, are you obeying your Savior? Are you being faithful to the simple things that he has called you to and trusting him to work? Not trying to do it all yourself. Let's pray for and ask for his help, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you for this account of how you sovereignly placed your servant in a deserted place, a place that really made no sense, humanly speaking, and yet you called him to serve faithfully there. God, we thank you for preparing hearts. God, each one of us could even look back at our own testimony of how we first came to see the light of the gospel in Christ. And we could see how it was you who prepared our hearts. You laid the foundation. You brought us the word. 
through a servant of yours for your, for, for your glory, Father. We thank you for that. Father, I pray that as we consider this morning maybe even our own salvation and how you brought us to that, that knowledge, that place of faith in Christ, would you help us also to consider how might you use us to spread the word, to be an extension of, of who you are, of the message of the gospel. And help us to do that in simplicity. Help us not to overcomplicate it. Father, would you help us, first of all, to know your word. It is our food. Would you help us to know it and to live it and to proclaim it? Help us to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.